Hey everybody, welcome back to the podcast. This week's episode, me, Dan, and Chad Sylvester from Exodus Outdoors um, get on the show and talk a little bit about trail cams and a study Dan is going to do this year uh, with his trail cameras. A lot of good stuff here. We got into a whole bunch of Q&A at the end of this episode. Probably half of it is uh, Q&A stuff. I hope you guys are enjoying it. Um, before we start the episode, I got to thank my sponsors. The first one being Stealth Outdoors. The guys at Stealth Outdoors, Lou and his wife is pretty much uh, who, who um, does all the work there at, at Stealth Outdoors. Great people. Um, they have lots of great products for mobile hunters, for um, you know, private lane guys that are are just uh, sitting on a field edge. There's a, there's a product there for you. It's the number one, hands down, best silencing um, tape on the market. Um, get you some stealth strips. Get you some buckle silencers. You will not regret it. I have it on my bow, um, compound, and my my long bow. I got it on my my stand, um, sticks everywhere. Um, you can't be too careful when it comes to noise in the deer woods. So get you some stealth strips at stealthoutdoors.com. Also, gotta thank Hunting Beast Gear, the makers of the best stand and sticks for the mobile hunter in the industry. Whether you're a private land guy or a public land guy, it's a must-have in your arsenal to get on those big bucks close to their bedding areas. Um, I obviously love mine. Um, I can't imagine me hunting anything else. So, um, finally, uh, go, go to huntingbeastgear.com and, and get you some beast gear. Finally, got to talk to you about Exus Outdoor Gear and something they got going on right now. Um, July 15th, which is today, to August 19th. Um, it's Velvet Fest time of year, everybody. Um, I've been out and about looking at deer. Got Actually, this morning, got got some video of two decent bucks out in a lush bean field just full of velvet. So, um, pretty cool. The deer are fully grown out. Perfect time to get out there and enjoy Velvet Fest until August 19th. So, what does that mean? It means when you uh, order a camera from Exodus, it'll come with a scratch-off card that saves you 15 to 25% off your next camera or arrows, the MMT arrows, which is what me and Dan are going to shoot this year uh, through our compounds. Um, so you get you can you can win 15 to 25% off. Um, there's also uh, going to be some exclusive Velvet Fest savings announced on their email newsletter. So get at their website, and as soon as you get in there. The, they have a pop-up to where you can sign up for their newsletter. And then finally, use the hashtag VelvetFest on social to win prizes throughout their online events. Uh, and they'll be sending all kinds of Exodus gear to random people that participate in Velvet Fest. So visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com and get you some trail cameras, some swag, some arrows. All right, let's get into the episode. Hey everybody, welcome to the show. Hope everybody's doing good tonight. We've got uh, quite a few people on already, so that's a that's a good sign for tonight. We've got a good topic tonight. We're going to talk about trail cameras and kind of some stuff Dan has going on uh, this year with his with his uh, fleet of trail cameras, and that's why you see Mr. Chad Sylvester from Exodus at the bottom of the screen here. He's going to join us tonight and and uh, talk about trail cameras. Um, see a whole bunch of familiar names in the, uh, 
comments. So um, welcome, everybody. All right, let's go through some housekeeping stuff. As usual, we'll try to do some questions at the end. So if you got any questions, just leave them in the comments. Um, we're going to probably take some call-ins, too, and I'll put that link in the comments here after a bit, as long as I don't forget. So if I forget, start, start hollering at me in the comments, and I will, uh, I'll be sure to put them in there. Uh, okay, I've made an executive decision on the giveaway for the, the sticks. I'm going to give them away at the end of July. Uh, or if we hit 5,000 subscribers before the end of July, I'll give them away then. But uh, we're tracking still. We've, we're uh, we're getting close, uh, but I'm, I'm wanting to get them out so I can move on to the next giveaway. Uh, so with that being said, make sure you subscribe if you guys haven't and you're on here. Um, I'm going to draw probably a, 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 the first um, the, the first podcast in August. I'll probably draw the, the winners of the mini sticks. Um, what else? Oh, a whole bunch of super chats last week. That was awesome. So everybody that sent us a super chat, thanks so much. Um, one request from Rick, Ricky Poo, him and the guys from Light 'Em Up Outdoors are going to have a booth, uh, hunting beast gear booth at the Mississippi Wildlife Extravaganza. So if you guys are all from the South, y'all can go down there and see, um, some of the beast gear and whatnot um, down in Mississippi. I mean, Dan will be up in Wisconsin. I'm sure Rick will be there too. When is that? When's Deer Fest, Dan? Uh, it's coming up pretty quick here. Like Early August. Yeah. yeah, like in a few weeks. But uh, anyway, how's it going, Chad? It's going good, man. Just, just kind of hanging out here in Northeast Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. It's been, it's yeah. Been, things are good. You've been good, pretty good, busy good. lately. We've been very busy. Mm -hmm. The, the era launch um, about two weeks ago, I, I believe. Uh, I think it was around July 1st, maybe maybe a couple days, maybe last couple days of June, something like that. But, yeah, it's uh, it doesn't it, – it never seems to slow down, you know. And this is the time for, for us. I mean, I'm sure you guys do the same, Dan. It's like you try to wrap up as many loose ends as you can. Mm-hmm. Because come September, October, Coming. that's it. That's it. Yeah. So just I got me some of those arrows. They're shooting really nice. Good, good. Yeah, and uh, we've been talking about the arrows for a couple weeks on the podcast. But I wanted you to hop on here and like talk about the technology and like what makes the MMT arrow different. Uh, MMT arrow different from uh, like a standard arrow a guy would buy at the uh, pro shop. Yeah, there's um, there's a couple a couple things. One is the carbon insert, the carbon tube that we install on the front of the arrow. So there's a six inch carbon tube that we install on the front, which elongates the forward node of your arrow. So it helps the arrow recover after work's been applied to it. So after you shoot it, you know, um, if you look at this stuff like on a high speed camera, which we've just done a ton of testing, um, which is really cool. Like you see some of these high speed cameras and these arrows are just doing, they look like they should explode by the way that they're bending and rotating and oscillating. Um, it's, it's really neat to see. So, but, so, uh, uh, back up. What's a, can you explain what a node is? Yeah. So, arrow. so there's two spots on your arrow. There's one on towards the front of your arrow where your point or broadhead would screw into. And then there's also one on the back and on a typical arrow, those are, there are spots, and I say a spot, it might be like an eighth of an inch spot. 
But that's where all the movement, so the flexing, the bending, the torsion, the compression, the tension, when your arrow is doing a bunch of weird things in flight, all those forces go through those spots. Some people could say like vibration, it, like you could, you could tap that arrow on your leg and you can move your finger down the shaft and where you feel the most vibration is the two, the two nodes. So with that inner carbon tube on the front, it takes that node from being like an eighth of an inch to an inch, sometimes an inch and a quarter. Sometimes it depends on what kind of point, um, point weight and point length that you have on the front of that. But essentially we just elongated that. And ideally that should sit on your arrow rest, especially like Dan, if you're shooting, um, you know, a capture style or a fixed rest, something, you know, a non-drop away, um, it becomes a, a, a bigger deal, but that helps the arrow recover faster. And then there's some, you know, the shaft is patented. There's a, a one-to-one weave there to help um, really increase the torsion strength. And also there's a safety factor there. I know a lot of guys have probably seen those images floating around social um, with a, you know, carbon splinters or a splintered carbon shaft through somebody's hands. And we've all probably shot an arrow and seen it explode. Um, these arrows don't fracture or they don't break like that. They actually fracture. So mm. if you were, we just shot up, did some torture testing um, over on our YouTube channel. And we were just shooting these things into like a concrete paver, like somebody would set out like for a sidewalk, you know, and um, showed the different failure points and how, how these, how they, how they break and, and different things. So um, it's just the, we're just at the first layer of this whole thing. I mean, the, the concept around the, the builder is still not completely executed. Um, we had a little bit of trouble on the back end with coding and outsourcing that. So we had to get a new coder in to finish building this, but ideally we want to be able to offer several different options for folks based around the exact setup and animal that they want to chase. So we want to be able to have kinetic energy and momentum calculators built in there um, to let folks know, Hey, if, if you choose to buy this arrow, this setup is going to work best on antelope and whitetail, or maybe it's, maybe it's a little bit heavier and you have more momentum. So it's geared more towards bigger animals like elk or moose or, or, or whatnot. So that's the idea around the, the e-commerce builder. Mm. You know, yeah, I was pretty, I was abusing the hell out of my arrows and uh, actually ripped one of the feathers. And when I shot it, the feather came off and uh, right out of the bow, the arrow went all wonky. Mm -hmm. And what was surprising was it completely corrected itself and hit right in the group with the rest of the arrows with, with only two feathers. I would have yeah, uh, off into space. Right. There's um, there's a little bit of science there behind the veins that we chose. Um, those veins that your your build was set up uh, with are arrow vein two from fire knock and they're designed with an airfoil. So as those things spin, it creates lift because there is more pressure on the underside of that vein than the, than the top side, which helps with your center of pressure. So if you look at stable flight between an arrow, you have the center of gravity, which can change with like your FOC or what you're doing up front. And then on the backside, you have center of pressure and the further away you get those two points, the more, stable your arrow becomes but you have to be careful because um you know if you start your revolution rate too fast like your spinning rate and you tend to get some yawing and pitching in that arrow 
a lot of times that is what can cause broadhead planting if you're shooting big fixed 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 blade broadheads. So you have to be careful, like even guys shooting um, helicals, you got to be careful on how how much offset or how much helical you put in there because once that spin rate goes to a certain point, um, you're looking at like diminishing returns. Mm. Stuff gets complicated, man. At the end of the yeah. day, <laughs> I mean, it gets really complicated and pull me back in anytime. But uh, it's like, know, know your setup, know how much kinetic energy and momentum you have and what you need to kill a whitetail or kill a moose or a bear or whatever it is you're hunting. Get there with the best flight trajectory and shoot whatever you have confidence in at the end of the day, because there's, there's no right or wrong. I mean, the goal is two holes. And if you can do that, uh, on any animal that you're hunting, then, it, then it's a win. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I think like some of the, something that never gets talked about, we talk about arrows so much and it's like, no matter what arrow you have, if your bow isn't in tune, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, mm-hmm. um, something we, something we don't talk about enough. Everybody knows how to build a dang arrow, but they don't know how to tune a bow, you know? hundred um, percent. So anyway, um, all right, enough arrow talk. We don't want to uh, we don't want to bore people too much. Some people love love that kind of stuff, but um, let's talk about trail cameras. Yeah, Dan just put a video up on the Hunt Beast yesterday. Um, little short, little scouting video, essentially, Dan, and uh, you kind of had a an idea during the the video about monitoring some bedding areas um, with a number of of cameras, and that's kind of what we wanted to talk about uh this evening with everybody and um probably just trail cam strategies in general for the season and uh we thought we'd start by talking about this experiment dan's going to do this year with a bunch of exodus trail cameras Um, i was kind of looking at like um i've got a you know a unique situation in the swamp territory here where a lot of the bedding areas are uh set up in a way where there's one exit so if the buck's there he's coming out a certain way if he's there He's coming down the trail. And if that's the case, if you monitor that with a um, a cell cam, you're going to watch him every time he comes through that that gap. So um, I was just thinking it'd be a great opportunity to um, get some stats, you know, and really see how things go. You know, and we talk about overlooked spots, see how many times actually other hunters go into those spots. You know, there's a whole host of things we can we can look at. How consistent your bed. Um, how, how it impacts them when you, uh, you know, go in there and you hunt, you know, um, all kinds of stuff. Yeah. You know, I, I think it's going to be really interesting because there's not so much in the last six months have I heard it, but probably last year, maybe the year before that, when cell cameras were really becoming the new norm, becoming really popular, hitting critical mass. Mm-hmm. Guys that were running cameras on bait – there was a claim where people felt like cell cameras spooked deer because of, because of the RF. And I think this would be a good study to show whether it does or it doesn't, in my opinion, it doesn't. I have, I have an explanation for that, but I think being a part of this study, um, I think that there'll be some good usable data even around that sense on, on that. That's why it's kind of, if possible, I'd like to have either you or Cameron come out, and help with that because uh, you've got your expertise and your cameras and you can help with the setups and stuff and 
you know, uh, make sure that we're doing it in a, in a certain way. And uh, we can monitor that too, you know, and talk about that on video. I think this whole thing's going to be a really great learning experience. So Dan, like how many cameras are you thinking about running uh, during the year? Uh, How many chat will bring up to you? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe six or seven. I don't know. You know, um, and they're all going to be cell cameras. Yeah, that would be the the ticket. If if it wasn't a cell cam, I'd have to leave it there for the whole year and not check it. Right. I'm not going to go back into those uh, bedding area. You know, uh, I learned long ago that putting them right in bedding areas, which is what a lot of guys want to do, they want to put it right over the beds. Deer just freak out about that. If you're just 75 yards back, you're still getting yeah. a picture of the deer. And if the deer beds a little different one day, you know, because generally they got a bunch of beds, you don't miss the the footage, you know, and stuff like that. On that exit, he's coming out. So I want to monitor the exits about 75 yards from the beds. And there's only certain bedding areas that'll work on. So, I mean, ones that got one good exit coming out and uh, usually ones that are backed up against something, you know, near a road, near a river, that kind of stuff, or going down into cattails that are coming up a point out. And uh, then it's got to be ones that I know big bucks use. So um, it's going to be kind of interesting, you know, see how many different bucks use that bedding area in a year, you know, how consistent it is. You know, that I talk about uh, how, in the past, I've noticed two week time periods when they're really peak on bedding areas, you know, see how consistent uh, that is because the cameras aren't going to lie. They're going to tell the truth, you know, and see if we see different results in different bedding areas, you know, which I'm sure we will. Yeah. It'll also be interesting if you could like prolong it to run the exact same cameras next year. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, as long as they're fruitful areas Um, and just to see like, how maybe crop rotation in a certain area it may have changed something or um, if you had a good acorn crop or I don't know, just things like that would be interesting to, to note and and uh, see how that kind of stuff um, plays out. Also, like um, we talked about this a little bit too, is like be interesting to see what, what kind of pressure each camera gets as far as human pressure. Mm-hmm. Um, right. We talk, we talk about how, uh, you know, these are overlooked spots. Mm-hmm. Now, what is an overlooked spot? How many times do the humans get in there? You know, we know occasionally people get into every spot in the woods, but uh, it'll be kind of interesting. I know, you know, I ran a cell cam on a spot last year and I had uh, 100 come in once, you know, and I was actually kind of surprised about that in that spot. But uh, that'll be interesting, too. You know, it is, you know, coyotes might come through. Yeah. You can see what the impact of that is. Maybe they don't have as much impact as humans because they're always coming through. Maybe they do. You know, it, it's going to be interesting. You know, there was a there was a an audible noise study done in Georgia last year, and the NDA released some of that. Um, and we actually had this guy on our on our on our podcast, but the study was around noises um, from predators. So wolves which aren't in georgia coyotes uh humans and i think there might have been maybe it was bobcat maybe the the bobcat was the last one and they had a bunch of different test sites and the biggest negative impact on deer movement between all of those predators and this was just purely audible so it's just uh, basically they had a camera there and then they had some type of uh, audio file like playback at specific like a time. predator call or something. Yeah. Right. Exactly. And 
the human voice had a bigger impact on every one of those test sites mm-hmm. over coyotes or wolves or, or, or bobcats. It was really interesting. I believe that. Yeah, for sure. You got any? Go, go ahead. ahead. Go ahead, Dan. No, I was, I, I was just gonna. I was gonna say. Um, I don't know the numbers of of deer that like coyotes and bobcats kill around here, but I I can't imagine it's as many as hunters kill. Um, I've I've seen them hunt. You know, not bobcats. We don't have a lot much for bobcats around here, but I've seen coyotes hunt deer quite a few times. When yeah. I'm when I'm in the field, I've seen them circling deer, going after them, and I think they they can be pretty consistent at that however i think the freaking coyotes find them no matter where they go right i think that you know um humans don't so they can avoid the humans i don't think they can avoid the coyotes as much i think maybe they're used to them yeah i mean they live with them essentially you know at least they get a break from us for you know 70 percent of the year <laughs> uh, some states less than that but um yeah i was uh i'm we were before the podcast, we were sitting here um, just talking about life right now and, and how deer season's sneaking up on us. And I was thinking about going to Tennessee uh, on that, in that velvet season. And that's like a few weeks from now, or, you know, about a month from now, I guess. Um, but I still got a whole bunch of stuff to do around here still. I got cameras, I got to get out and everything else. I'm going to try to uh, find a few places kind of like Dan's describing too and uh, compile that data maybe in Hill Country. I put out two cameras this weekend in Hill Country. They weren't cell cameras because I don't have cell service where I was at, but um, I'd like to include that in, in mm-hmm, the yeah. data for sure. Um, just some like buck bedding points that go down into a hub and out to a crop field eventually. And you know, found a nice couple of nice scrapes down in there and put them over that, those scrapes. Are you, Dan, are you going to specifically like try to find scrapes outside of bedding or just intersecting trails? Or is there any particular like way you're going to set up the, the cameras? No, a- actually, um, finding those two spots with scrapes um, in that video was pretty rare. Yeah. You know I mean? Finding scrape beds is not an easy task. So, no, I'm not going to target that. I am going to have cameras at those two spots. But uh, um, most of the time, I'm just going to be looking for bedding that I I believe, for whatever reason, be it sign or past history, that I know mature bucks are bedding there, um, or at least occasionally do, right? So um, that's what I'm going to target. And the, those, um, those two with the scrapes are kind of uh, unique. You don't see that a lot. I've just had a lot of success when I have found that situation. Yeah, for sure. James W. in the comments said he's, I bet, I bet, uh, cars kill more deer than coyotes. Did they have like a horn beeping at him? Uh, I don't, in that not, <laughs> I, don't I don't think so, but that would have been funny. Stop. I think coyotes kill a lot of fawns. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They also kill deer in, um, in deep snow. And then they get a lot of the mature bucks that are run down from the rut. There was, there was a, um, man, there was a trail camera. Chad, you probably, have seen this there was somebody put a trail camera over like a, a a den for coyotes and they counted like how many fawns they drug into that oh really den yeah and it was like a number that you never guess had been that high and it was just a astronomical amount of fawns that the coyote the um the female was pulling into her pups 
Wow. Yeah. You know, um, I'll look. I'll try to find it. Yeah, you'll send that to me. For a while, there was a period of about five, six years where we never saw a fawn on Dave's property. Yeah. All the does would uh, be fawnless because uh, there's so many coyotes. Hmm. Yeah, they're they're hard on hard on the fawns, yeah. and we have a lot of coyotes anymore. Um, you have less and less people trapping, less and less people hunting them. Yeah. I mean, yeah. outside, like where we are, outside of a couple big week long coyote contests, like there ain't very many people hunting them, and there's and those very- things. Those things are going to be a thing in the past eventually too. Like people get all kinds of upset about those. Uh, um, my, my dad and my uncles, they, they run coyote dogs, but they not like they used to, they don't, they don't do it as much as they used to anymore. And, um, you know, they've always done it after deer season and, uh, just, you know, they're a group of up around here. Oh, really? Yeah. It's starting to like, um, get to be the end thing with people. A lot of people are starting to, uh, call them use infrared by those you know high dollar scopes and and a lot of guys yeah. are running problems. yeah hey i have to i gotta go grab a charger real quick my my laptop's dying here I go, go for it rookie, rookie mistake i'll be back in one minute no okay. problem yeah uh i i looked into bot because we got uh down in uh the farm that i have we we got coyotes bad down there um and i looked into getting one of those like scopes those infrared mm-hmm. night scopes and yeah, I don't know. Got we a lot of money. Dollars, yeah. Oh, a lot of money wrapped up into that stuff. I want to say they're like five grand or something like that. Um, maybe it wasn't that much, but it seemed like it was, it was close. It was enough to where I was like, no, not even going to think about it. Um, we almost uh, had an exciting uh, show tonight because uh, we had a great escape of um, Carol had some feral cats in the house here in a, in a room and they busted a window out they busted out the screen and, and escaped and uh we we're trying to catch them and uh she locked she locked one of them in this room and it kept trying to attack me like it was a mountain lion or something and i thought i was gonna have to spend some time in here with it but she finally got it out of here <laughs> that's funny it broke did it break the just the screen it didn't break glass did it no they She's got a, you know, like one of those old fashioned accordion screens in there. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. I was tackling cats just before the podcast. <laughs> so what would you say, Dan? Like, I don't know if there's a, there's five or six things. Like, what are, what all are you going to look at whenever you're, whether it be moon or temperature, or whatever? What, what all are you thinking about? You know, I'm going to try and here. look at everything I can. Um, yeah. anything that I can correlate a pattern on, um, you know, and I'm sure I'm going to think of more stuff along the way, but, uh, I mean, uh, we talked about a lot of it. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd like to, uh, predict what I, th- when I think the betting areas are going to peak, you know, based on what I, you know, you know, like I always talk about being the detective and going into these bedding areas. In, you know, when you scout them and uh, figuring out when you think deer are going to be there rather than just hunting them randomly, right? So make some predictions about what's going to happen and then see if I'm right or if I'm wrong on camera and, and learn from the experience, right? So um, that kind of stuff. Um, but I mean, there's a million things we can monitor. 
Yeah. And I think as the uh, the data comes in, we can start trying to, you know, correlate that to to things that went on. Would be it, you know, um, how early they move on moon phases or something. If you know, if we get enough data, we can do that. You know, um, there ain't a lot of big bucks around here, but I'm I'm assuming we're going to get enough data to to, to check some of that stuff. I, I'd also like to see, you know, the difference between mature bucks and younger bucks, how they come out and stuff. You know based on amount of daylight, um, you know, things like that. I think the, uh, you know, the moon phase and transit times. So overhead underfoot, I think that would be really interesting to monitor. Right. I know that, you know, there's guys that believe in it and there's guys that don't believe in it. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I want to believe in, I want to believe in it because I think it, you know, from what a lot of guys say, it gives you, or can give you an advantage. Mm-hmm. And I just personally haven't seen any correlation or even all of us here at the office, like going, going through data, but that doesn't mean it's, it's not because we're not running cameras in a manner for us to really be able to decipher that either. Mm-hmm. Where, you know, if they're we're 75 yards from uh, a betting area with one exit, I think that that data is probably a lot more accurate than having cameras scattered all over all over the big woods. Correct. You, you know, um, I have seen some correlation with moon phase, with the overhead underfoot thing. However, I've seen it very dramatically, at least based on what I've, what I've observed. And when I got into um, western Wisconsin and hill country and in Iowa and hill country um, where it was low pressure, I saw a lot of movement around it, overhead and underfoot. And I was particularly graphing it at the time, you know, going on like 10 day hunts and graphing all my sightings to the moon and seeing correlations. Even if it was noon, I was seeing more deer than those times. But when I went back home and I hunted the swamps and the heavy pressure, I wasn't seeing it. But I think um, if, if it's real here, we should see a difference, you know, at bedding areas, be it 15 minutes. 15 minutes is huge. You got to remember a lot of the huge bucks that I shoot at bedding areas, like at the staging areas coming out of bedding 75 yards from their bed, I'm shooting them at closing time or close to it. So getting them to move 15 minutes earlier is huge, you know? So that is a correlation that I really want to keep track of, you know? Yeah. Something else I think is going to be cool is like, we can, we can even talk about it on the podcast throughout the, the season is like when we have cold front or some type of a weather front come through just as that week, we can like, I've mentioned the deer that showed up on your trail cameras or, you know, if, you know, four of the six of them had, uh, some type of a decent buck on it on some certain day or some certain weather pattern, or I don't know. What's good about snow cams is, is now you can't really go back in there too much with the, um, regular cameras. Right. So yeah. with the cell cam, you're getting day by day data and you can watch the weather day to day and you don't have to go back and go through all the past data and stuff. And then, yeah. you know, there's going to be certain things you're going to get a little off or not remember quite right or something. And, you know, have to go just based on what the weather says, you know, unless you do it day by day, you know, I can watch it day by day and chart it every day. What's coming in on the, the phone. And then it's not overwhelming at the end of the year either. And it can kind of, It'd be fun to, you know, talk about it on the videos. You know, we can have, 
you know, test site one, two, three, four, five, six, or whatever, and talk about them week to week, you know, as we do videos, you know? Yeah. And then correlate it to the weather during the week. And then at the end of the season, really put all the data together and see where it went. I've over, um, over the years tried to like correlate stuff with, with trail cameras and I've never really done it with cell cams like we're doing right now mm. or this year. And it seems like at the end of the year, you're just overloaded with data points and it's just like, you, <laughs> you kind of give up on it. Cause it's like, I can't look through, mm. you know, 20,000 pictures of, you, you know, I'm always, you know, I'm always about trying to gain information from cameras. Yeah. That's always my thing. My, you know, hunting i don't really care about the camera too much it, to, to me hunting's about choosing the right spot for the right reasons but the data you get out of the cameras is always huge for me yeah and uh you, you know the, the trouble with it is is when you run one camera or something and you move it during the season and you do that mm-hmm. you don't know, move it around yeah. or you want one or two and then when you're done hunting you pull your cameras you know then you're not getting all that data so do or die whether i kill a deer or i don't kill a deer my goal is to just run these the whole season and monitor them the whole season and get some data out of it. Yeah. I, th- that's, I think that's one of the biggest mistakes people make with trail cameras is constantly checking them. Mm-hmm. The more you go in there, the more you mess around, the less accurate those data points become or the less pure they become. So yeah, of- actually in a lot of cases, um, if people misuse trail cameras, they hurt them more than they help them. 100%. Especially with regular cell, uh, I mean, regular trail cams. If they're going in there checking them constantly, and they'll get one or two big bucks that don't follow the rules, and will and will put up with the scent or whatever, and then they think they're doing everything right, but they're messing up all the other deer. And if that deer knows he's coming in there, he might be coming in when the cameras there, but he's going around and checking to see if the guy's there because he's used to the human scent. You know, um, he's not catching that deer off guard. Yeah, we um, so back dating back to. 2019 there's a guy in northwest pennsylvania that runs 100 plus cameras in that large piece of public there that you guys you guys have hunted Mm -hmm. and he's been collecting these data points and we just had him in the office uh last month and went over all two two plus years of running 100 plus cameras and he everything in a spreadsheet camera by i mean it was we haven't released the 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 information yet but it was it was crazy. And the long and short of it is like you're in Pennsylvania, there's guys in the woods and there were year over year, there were a couple windows that were really, really good. Mm-hmm. That'd be interesting to, to hear about. Um, yeah. You, you know, um, my past using cameras, I've had things catch me off guard. Like you don't expect, like uh, I had one spot that I really thought was a good early season spot. And over the years, it had a lot of action there. And then I ran a camera there for the whole year for a couple of years. It was at Dave's place. And I started noticing that when I thought it was hot for opening, you know, the opening couple of weeks. In the first two years, there wasn't a big buck there once. They didn't show up until October. And then when I went back and looked at my kills, here my kills were in October. It was just in my, my head. But watching the, the cameras... Those deer did not show up in that spot until that first first and second week of October, and they're gone by rut. There's that two-week period they, they were there. And without those cameras, I'd still be chasing that, trying to figure it out. But the camera gave me such a window that you saw every deer for two years that went in there. And it was purely random outside of that two weeks, two years in a row. 
Mm. Yeah, I've, I used, um, I have a particular spot that if you would set there on like November 3rd and 4th, you probably kill a nice deer every year. It's like every year at this, this area, there's a nice one that sc- strolls through. It's just a little point that goes out into a mm. cornfield, but it's like clockwork every year. Um, it's just never worked out to where I've been sitting there on the third and fourth, but, um, Stuart here, he said that you can pull historical weather from past years from weather underground and import it into an Excel file. I didn't know you could import them to the Excel file. Mm -hmm. I knew you could go back on in the history, but, um, that'd be pretty useful if you're doing this kind of thing. I don't know if Gary's still on. I saw him earlier on here, but he did a pretty good study last year and he, we kind of narrowed down. He had quite a few trail cameras in Indiana, um, I think he included his Wisconsin ones, but there was a couple of days where he had a, a pretty large number of deer, of bucks on that. Uh, he just did bucks in general, not necessarily mature bucks, but um, on a particular day, um, I can't remember. It coincided with some weather differences and um, you know a time frame, but I, I cannot remember that. I'd have to ask him what it was, but it was real interesting to see. Um. Yeah. Chad, how many cameras do you have out right now? Uh, not very many. I would say 20, somewhere between 20 and 25, probably. That's probably, depending who you ask, not very many. Yeah. I mean, most of those are left over from. Oh, from last year. Last few years. Yeah. I mean, there are spots that will run cameras 24, 7, you know, 365. Um, yeah, it was interesting when I uh, when I hunted with you. You had uh, cameras. You went to you. You said oh, I haven't been here in what over a year, and the camera's still running. And you had uh, the uh, solar power on there, and that just that yep. that runs and runs and runs, eh? Yeah, well, I mean, if you're if you get them set up right, um, there's there's one ki- one cell camera that's been running for three plus years. I mean, it was one Jeez. of the very first cell cameras off of production we have down there um and it's still still chugging along but then you have other cameras i mean there's so many variables with signal strength and upload frequencies i mean we have other cameras that you put out in three months and they're totally toast on the same you know the same system so yeah um november 3rd is when gary said he had the most bucks on on camera um there's it was a bunch of cameras i mean i don't maybe 20 or 30. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's a question, a pretty good question while we're talking about trail cameras here. Any advantages of putting cameras up high besides keeping people honest? Well, high is relative, right? Right. <laughs> um, most of most, we practice this theory that we call like the spook proof equation. So all of our cameras, unless we're worried about theft, they're somewhere between like six and eight feet. I don't like to put cameras up any higher than that because you're actually limiting what the camera can do. If you get a camera up, let's say 10 or 12 feet and it's angled down on a 45, like on a one-to-one, you just left the 12 foot gap underneath, underneath that camera. And also the detection and everything, um, the detection area and circuit. Yeah. You're monitoring a spot. So it's a, it becomes a static, what we call a, a static environment. So you're monitoring a spot which is great if you're on a scrape or if 
maybe you're on a feeder or bait station, mineral pile, whatever. There's places where that's it's conducive. Um, but I think more often than not, hanging them up, you know, 10 plus feet, I think most of the time guys are guys are hurting themselves. But I understand it because they don't want their stuff stolen. Um, you know, if people can't see it, they can't steal it. So one problem I've seen with that is it makes the deer um, antlers look really small. You oh, yeah. The tine height, they start looking like they're small racked. Yeah. Um, I've been shocked when I see how big a buck is after I seen it from the air and thought it was smaller. Yeah, not only tines, but just body features. You know, it's like my wife always complains when I, if I'm taking a picture of her on a, on a, on a, on a phone and the phone's not angled a certain way. She's like, you're making me look big. You need to angle the phone. <laughs> it's like the same. It's the same yeah. thing. You know? Photography tricks. If you're like monitoring just a scrape or something, though, it's not a huge, huge deal um, mm-hmm. to have them up in the air. Um, I I, uh, I did something on that in Marsh Bucks when I released that video way back in the 90s. And um, everybody said I was nuts. Now everybody's hanging them high. Yeah, a lot of people do. Um, I've gotten them stolen up high, too, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, someone asked feeling that they're going to get it, even if you, have yeah, uh, shimmy well, a tree. Cell camps too, is I think people are a little leery of stealing a cell cam because they don't know if you're going to come running or whatever. I remember, uh, um, that last challenge we were on, uh, Indiana, I think it was, um, we went in to scout one little area and I, I, uh, ran into a cell cam. I looked at it and then I went walking away and I walked out to the road. And some guy come flying up on a dirt bike, flying in the woods up to the cell cam, like looking around, scaring everything out of the woods because he was so worried we were stealing a cell cam because he got a picture of us, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got one stolen last year and the guy didn't turn it off and got pictures of him in his truck and everything else. You ended up uh, uh, getting that back, didn't you? Yeah, I got it back. Um, not very smart, but kind of funny. Uh Someone asked Chad, are you and Clint going back to Kansas this year? No, nope. Um, I drew an Iowa tag and then I have an Idaho elk tag and then with Ohio, that'll be it. That'll be it for the year. Just three tags. I was spread a little thin last year, man. We were all over the place with you yeah. guys. Mm-hmm. Two trips to Wisconsin, um, Ohio, Kansas, I mean, Kansas, Idaho. So no, just, just three tags this year. Yeah. 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 That's still busy year. Okay, Chad, this is, there's an arrow question that you can probably speak on a little bit here. Um, he says, Chad, I shoot 3d, um, but I'm in elite hunter division, so I don't use those super thick arrows. Um, Mm -hmm. are these, are your arrows, the, the straightness 0.001? No. So the builds are 0.06. So they're 6,000 straightness tolerance. And we've done some testing on this as well. Um, so out of a, even out of a hooter shooter, so a, like a shooting machine, you set a shooting machine up and you take every human variable out of it. You're not torquing your bow. You're not yanking a bad shot. You're not punching a trigger. And the grouping difference between a 0.001 arrow and a 0.006 arrow is not very much. I mean, I, I Josh, you and I have talked about this kind of off air, but there's only yeah. – 
there's only a handful of shooters, maybe 50 guys, maybe 100 guys in the world that can execute a shot consistently enough to shoot a better group with a .001 tolerance versus a six. And honestly, a lot of the times, this was like a big shocker to me when we were doing all this research, a lot of times manufacturers will do a production run. And then when they go through their process of uh, measuring tolerances, they'll just batch like a .001 arrow tolerance with a, and then they'll batch like a .003 and a .006. It's just, you're buying the same damn arrow shaft, but because one has a better straightness tolerance, it justifies a higher price. And then the other, again, I'm not a target shooter. I'm, I'm a, I'm a hunter. And I, I think yeah. that with what we plan to offer, I don't know that we'll ever get into the target world. That's just not who we are. Um, so like for me, like part of, going into a different product category is being curious or trying to solve a problem for myself. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what motivates me to, to, to learn different, different things. Um, But the other thing is, is like the difference between 0.001 and 0.006 is you're talking like human hair. I mean, Dan, you work in a machine shop, like, you know, Mm -hmm. five thou. it's not very much, not very much. And, and also when you think about, when is your arrow ever straight? Only at rest. Mm-hmm. It's not when you release it. Not at all. If no, you it, slow down video and you watch it, it, it really, it's all over the place. Yeah, I don't think uh, 5,000 is as much at all. I'm sure it makes a difference, but the difference is probably so minute that it ain't even going to show up in a, you know, in a pattern of a normal yeah. bow shooting. And that's what we found just using that high-speed camera and the Hooter shooter. Um, when you got out to longer distances, you know, 80, 90, hundred yards, there was, there was some difference. Um, but even like shooting off, offhand, like I'm not a good enough shot to, to be able to group, make a significant difference between the, mm-hmm. between the tolerances. Yeah. But again, it goes back to a confidence thing. Like I was the guy before I knew this stuff, I was a guy that would go spend more money, whether it's 40 or $50 a dozen on a straighter arrow. Cause in my mind, it's like, why do I want my arrow, you know, a 0.001? It's got to be better than 0.006. So not knowing anything, I would just spend my money and because it was a confidence thing. So I think the best thing for, for anybody, whether you're archery, hunting, just tinker and find something that works for you. Just tinker. Be, be inquisitive. Um think with a critical mind and think through things. Don't just digest what you're hearing, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And like you said earlier, me and me and you had a, uh, I guess we were texting back and forth about the, the straightness is cause I have a buddy that lives next door or down the road, I guess. Um, he shoots ASA and like he's in shoot offs, which some of the stuff you guys may not know what, what it is, but like Levi Morgan and Dan McCarthy, he shoots with those guys and, you know, um, competes with those guys. So, you know, Chad's talking about like the top 50 shooters in the world. He's probably right there. And, and, uh, you know, he, he we were, I was at his house shooting the, the arrows and, um, we got talking about the, the straightness. I didn't have any issues with them at all, but then he was just explaining to me, like, yeah, he's like, guys like that, you know, they'll be able to tell a difference. But, um, like to Chad's point, I couldn't. But this guy also was like having me shoot out at 80 yards. And he's like, all right, group at 80. I'm like, this, this is going to tell us nothing, dude. Like, <laughs> I missed the block once. I, you know, I had one on the left side, one on the right. But, um, 
you know, he could put it in a softball at 80 every single time. So yeah. that was his, you know, his thinking. You go back to the eighties and, uh, the Luna Lamaros, we used to, um, spin them. And if they had a wobble to them, we'd look at where the wobble goes down and we'd bend them on our knee a little bit till they spun through. I mean, those things were probably out 10 or 15 and they'd still kill a lot of deer with them. <laughs> yep. Chad, you guys have done a lot of research on arrows the last year or however long it's been since you started um, this journey with arrows. Um, Buck Slayer here, he, he asked about, um, he's asking, I think it's more of the chat, but I think it's a good conversation about what fixed blade heads were, were shooting. Um, and I think everybody kind of knows what me and Dan shoot. We, we shoot the, the G5 stuff, but um, have you like done much research on shooting single bevel, heavy heads, whatever, cut on contact, heavy heads out of compounds? Yeah, we just did this uh, a couple weeks ago into some ballistic gel and not necessarily heavy heads, um, but more of a, a standard hundred grain all the way across the board um, yeah. type, type test. But we there were some single bevels involved, all cut on contact, uh, fixed blade heads. Um, any ranging anywhere from, you know, a, a, a broadhead like tooth of the arrow, which is like a machined one piece, four blade, only an inch, you know, cutting diameter, something really, really small. It's not very long, short, compact to like the iron will vented, you know, inch and an eighth or inch and a quarter, um, head. That's like, I don't know. They're really expensive. Yeah. Uh, made out of tool steel. I think they're like $109 for three of them or something Where, like that. Yeah. Um, so we've done a bunch of different testing, but when it comes to, in my opinion, from my, my research, um, you know, mass is mass momentum. Momentum comes from mass. So whether you have, you know, uh, a, a 500 grain arrow and 300 of it's up front or a 500 grain arrow with a hundred up front, you still have the same amount of mass. But what I would say is I think that there's more value in having, if you're going to add mass up front through like inserts or a collar, I, in my opinion, it's, you're probably better off leaving that weight in the broadhead. So your broadhead has more structural integrity versus putting a 200 grain outsert or insert up front and then putting a hundred grain broadhead. Now I know not all, all the heads have, um, options, you know, a hundred, 125 is pretty, pretty standard. But, um, in my opinion, if I was going to shoot a high FOC build, I would have my weight in the broadhead, not, not in the collars personally. Yeah. My, my biggest problem with all, all that, I'm not going to call it a fad, but like the, the, um, the concept is I think it gives people way, way too much confidence. Um, and, being able to shoot through a shoulder or take some real hard quartering shot. It's like the way that's that stuff is presented to people is a little bit misleading to me. It's mm -hmm. like, yeah, that's all fine and dandy and great, but like you still need to think about the, the animal and what you're actually trying to do. Cause you know, I've hit a couple shoulder blades and not got through them with what I would consider a heavier setup. Um, and it was yeah, honestly, I don't know if you saw that argument I had with somebody on the line not too long ago, but the person was telling me that uh, he shoots them all in the shoulder, shoots right through the shoulders. And I'm like, probably not a good idea <laughs> with any arrow. 
yeah have to aim for that spot you know yeah and i mean there's no question it can be it can be done and all that but it's like sometimes it isn't done you know you know like it's all it all works until it doesn't and there's um, differences in deer too i mean uh you look at the yeah. deer that i shot last year it was like 240 250 dressed that thing had shoulders on it like mm-hmm. just getting through the shoulder without a shoulder blade would have been tough you know you know it's not apples to apples if you're shooting a 90 pound doe versus a mature buck um you know you know it's great to have that foc and get get through that deer um but don't count on it i mean you still gotta yeah. have good arrow placement yeah. Well, I think the biggest thing is just to know your, know your setup, know the, know its capabilities. And like what Josh said, you know, at times being patient and waiting for the the right shot angle um, is a hell of a lot better than, you know, spending the, the, the next day tracking, tracking a deer or having to call a dog yeah. and having those sleepless mm-hmm. nights. Like, and we've all like, I've done it. We've all, we've all yeah. done it. Like, oh yeah. Yeah. I'm a horrible I'm- shot, <laughs> but because of that, and because I know that, I, I have to be more careful about waiting for the right opportunity. Right. Someone asks, how's Dan coming along with buying Dave's partial? No, I don't think it's happening. Yeah. Yeah. It's not the best time Especially to be buying land. going on right now. Yeah. And so they kind of got it where they want to sell it to a friend of the family's and, uh, now that friend of the family's having money problems, maybe I could slide in there. I'd probably tick some people off. And uh, right now, money's getting tight with the economy. So I'm a little worried about that. Yeah, your gas bill went up a whole bunch. I bet you drive quite a ways to work every day. So yeah. the, good, the good news is it looks like I'll be able to hunt it again this season because uh, they're waiting for this person to build some money up. And I'm pretty confident if that person does buy it, they're going to allow me to hunt there. Yeah, so. that's good. I got some decent news from my uh, my CRP field. I was uh, I was at a Fourth of July party and the so there's the the farmers are a son and a um, a father, and the father's probably seventy and the son's you know uh, late thirties, forty something like that. And uh, the 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 father was there and he was talking to me about. Uh, I always want me to trap coons because they got coon problem. And he was uh, he was saying, "Yeah, did Matt tell you that he's gonna put that um, those crops or that CRP potentially in crop?" And I said, "Yeah, he told me." He goes, "I think it's a bad idea. I'm gonna try to talk him out of it." So maybe his dad will keep talking to him and get him to not not uh, take it out of um, the CRP rotation. But um, here's a, a question: We can give some people some tips for Chad. I think you have a pretty good. Uh, solution to to this problem when you have a setup on large trees and your straps are too short how do you make it work for cameras for truck cameras? no i think he's talking about for for a, a tree stand um we'll do both i don't know if we, which one he's talking about but yeah i mean it's the same answer for me i guess uh, on the on the camera side we use paracord we use paracord we ditch the straps even right out of the box i don't use trail camera straps at all anymore um and then like for sticks um climbing sticks like when we were in kansas man some of those giant cottonwoods yeah just they're they were tough i mean it was a a challenge but um 
on my sticks, I have an eight foot rope mod. And then I use like a, um, I don't know what the knot is. You just loop the hitch. Yeah. Yeah. And basically a simple hitch. And I've been doing that for, I probably it's been, how long have the, the, the 24 inch originals been out, Dan? Has it been three years or four years? Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah. So mine are at least three years old. And I, I did, I did that pretty quick with them. Um, even the, the, the XOP sticks and stuff I was using before we ran those rope mods. And I personally, I, I really like them. I mean, you get a little bit of, a little bit of slip, uh, when you go to set that, when you go to set the stick, um, but not, not, not a ton, but that's, that's what I do in a bigger trees. So, um, you can use a double strap too. You can, you can loop a strap around inside of itself and have two straps as one. Um, for, the Lone Wolf Company, that uh, one out of Illinois, before they were put out of business by someone, uh, they sold just loop straps that were shorter to give you an extension for the bigger trees. And that extension was perfect because it didn't have a buckle on it, and then you could get right, you know, around just any tree you could reach around. So those were nice. Um, um, I'm not into the to the rope mods. I don't like the slipping personally. I know a lot of people use them though. I always carry a, uh, something similar to what you're talking about, Dan. Um, it's just a extra strap essentially, and I'll wrap it around. I use my belt one. I got usually like a, you only need one. Usually, it's only the bottom stick that you got to get around yeah. that big, big diameter part of the tree. Yeah. Another thing I do too is with the the ones that are just barely there. Is if you turn the stick sideways, you can get it on, and then you pull it around and get it. You know, super tight then. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, it happens sometimes. Sometimes it's, uh, it's your only option. Sometimes trees are small. Sometimes they're big. <laughs> yeah, most, um, of the time, most of the trees that I'm hunting and um, are smaller. It's not too often I get in a real big tree, yeah, but it happens. Kind of, yeah, here in Indiana, you can get some pretty big ones. Um, okay, this is a pretty good question that we can kind of go around the horn on here. That's uh, um, it could be trail cam related too. Can, can you guys discuss how you're planning your first? weeks of sits you plan ahead to hunt a specific buck or bedding areas um or do you just wait till season's a little bit closer to decide um i know my answer is going to be different than chad's because chad's traveling um for me uh my first sits uh around my place are determined the day before i'm hunting i'm looking at the wind and stuff but um it's going to be determined by the wind it's going to be determined by sightings it's going to be determined by sign it's going to be determined by past events past scouting so i'm just basically going to put myself in the best option for that day and uh there's a lot of factors that can go into that i mean hopefully i've been watching a buck through the summer and i'm moving in on that buck um if not i'm going in on something past knowledge you know of, of some buck right so how about you chad well um it's gonna Yours be around probably related you've probably seen well, him on camera in, oh, in ohio yes i mean we we were in uh we were in iowa in the unit that we applied for and, and drew in the spring and did some scouting and hung some cameras uh we haven't been back to check them but the first I'm going to say the plan to hunt that is to make a trip. The first cold front after 
probably October 15th. And I am only reason I say October 15th is because I'm just getting back from Idaho the first or second of October. So I got to kind of get caught up in my homework a little bit. Um, but that entire area, um, you know, we'll, we'll go in and check cameras and scout, but there's a, a really, really good glassing point there, which I know sounds weird because a lot of guys aren't glassing deer um, in the Midwest, but the way this public lays out, it's uh, basically a river corridor and off to the one side, it's just not like bluffs, just basically follow, follow that. And then there's all ag, ag and CRP and stuff in the bottom. So that was the very first thing that Cameron and I looked at was, okay, let's knock on some doors and figure out where we can get up on this bluff system. Even if we're on somebody's front porch or up on a house, it doesn't matter to us. We just need to be able to get up and get a visual advantage and be able to get up there in the evenings and mornings and lay eyes on something and then make a, make a plan. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I'll typically like get super aggressive the first two days of season. Um, I'll have a deer picked out that I want to hunt that I think is accessible. Um, you know, by October 1st is when our opener is. And, um, I've had pretty good luck getting on deer quick like that. And I'm talking about, you know, hunting real close to bedding and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, if I don't kill something the first couple of weeks, we usually don't, you know, or first couple of days, I usually don't, I'll set back and do some observation sits and then try to make a move on a deer, um, from there. Or if I get some different Intel from, uh, cameras, I'll, uh, I'll also do that. Like I, I run a lot of cell cameras. Um, so that helps make a decisions. Um, but it's not always like the deciding factor for me. It's, uh, it's a deciding factor if it's a, you know, some good Intel. Uh, but I also have a whole bunch of regular SD card cameras that I'll go check in like September, um, at some point in time. And just cause here in the Hills, we don't get service in a lot of areas. And I'll, I'll also make some decisions on, on, on those the first week of season. But dude, like the first week of season is my favorite time to, to hunt deer around here. Like you got all this anticipation from not being able to hunt all the you know all summer all since last deer season and um yeah i've just had some really good hunts early season that um and i always just look forward to it uh but man i don't i don't ever like my chance my plans will change sometimes driving out to the spot um i don't put many many hunts in stone it's all just um kind of one of those deals was like a feeling like a lot of times just a feeling like i just have a sometimes you got a sense that hey i need to I need to be in this spot um, this evening, early season. So, um, yeah. Hey, Chad, what are those uh, grains per inch on your arrows? Uh, 9.0 on the 350s, and then the 300s are 9.8. So not they're not light by, by any means. I know a lot of people, when we start putting con- content out and saying – not that we are anti FOC, but like we are kind of anti FOC. So a lot of people took the assumption that like we were, cause we talked so much about velocity deprivation that everybody thought we were going to have something light and fast. And they're not really that light. It's a moderate, I, I would consider yeah. it a, a moderate build. Like most guys, 
like Dan's setup is over 500 grains with a hundred grain broadhead. Um, maybe like 515 or something. I'm just barely under 500 um, with my setup. So they're not light by any means. Right. And you got that insert in the front. So that's, you know. Um, Dan, are you guys going to produce any more 24-inch beast sticks? Someone asked I don't that. Think so. I think we're done with them. I think it's just going to be the shorts from now on. And actually, um, you, you know, when I first built sticks, um, my concept and my idea was probably what these guys that like the long ones were thinking, was that I wanted to get as high as I could with, with a stride length of, you know, with maximum stride length so I could minimize weight for, for per height, basically. You know, it's, it's kind of a calculation, right? But uh, um, Mario really wanted to create a stick that fit within uh, um, the Tree Stand Mafia's um, rule book so that they could be, you know, store legal at some point, right? So um, that meant we could only go to on the on the shorter stick to the tw the twenty inches, right? Um, per what we could have from step to step distance. So I built them for for him, and uh, I I'm the kind of guy who if you prove me wrong, I'm, I'm wrong. I mean, some guys can never admit being wrong, but when I tried those sticks out, I fell in love with them. Um, the short sticks are much better than the long sticks, I believe, all the way around. Um, and you have to try them to see that. Um, the difference in height is is four inches each, and uh, it really doesn't show up in a tree because you're usually getting around knots and sticks and stuff like that. And really, the height difference um, at max height from four to six of each is nothing. I mean, it's like like a foot if you had a perfectly straight limbless tree, which is usually not the case. It really is uh, minimal, and then you have that smaller package you can fit on your stand. Um, it fits between limbs on trees better. It's just an all around better stick. And I think, uh, you know, a little bit lighter, like, uh, you alluded to earlier. Um, yeah, I just think it's a better stick and I think we're going to go that route. Um, you know, rather than blowing smoke up people's butts and trying to get them to buy both. Yep. I just get, I I've gotten asked that question a few times in mess Facebook messengers and stuff. And I thought, be good to, to mention it on here um here's a here's something we could talk about because um it's pretty pretty popular thing to do anymore uh do you guys make your own mock scrapes and monitor them with cameras you have a favorite forehead scent i don't um we don't yeah. anybody has it have you guys we, had any uh, luck with that chad we do make our own mock scrapes and we yeah we've had a lot of success with it um i'm not a big scent person um, even when we're making mock scrapes, like I'm not putting pre-orbital or any of the urine or anything, basically nothing in them, but I'm putting them in a spot where like in the big woods, um, at a, an intersection of trails or I'm putting it in a deer's face essentially is what I'm, what I'm trying to say. I'm not just going out to a spot where I think I can have a perfect setup with a West wind and just putting a scrape out in the middle, middle of the timber. I'm putting it in their face and then I'll monitor it with a camera with no sense. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that's a vine. Sometimes that's a, a beach branch. Um, you know, I try to be as natural as possible, but we do like the, the vines. They're really easy to tie up with, um, easy to carry, pick up, you know, 
um, easy to tie up with a piece of paracord. Dan, you got anything? Yeah, I don't. I don't really care for them too much. I think if uh, I was using it for monitoring with a trail camera, like to get inventory or something, I think they work real well. But uh, not my cup of tea. I think uh, I can get that inventory in other ways, like camera over food and stuff like that. And yeah, I just don't like messing with them, messing with scent and stuff. I like uh, doing it the natural way. And some of that, I'm not saying it's wrong or it's bad or anything like right. that. It feels kind of weird. Kinda. Yeah, it's it I, just like I like hunting deer, not you know using gimmicks. It's just right. me. It's not about trickery; it's about catching that deer on his own terms, kind of thing. You know. Mm -hmm. I uh, I actually did a little bit of experimenting this week with uh, I I made a couple in the hills here in Indiana. I'll do it in, in Indiana, like up in the in the hills where sometimes it's hard to like find a real defined trail or something like that to put um, a camera on to get inventory. So I'll, I'll throw up a mock scrape. I, I don't, um, I don't typically put like a, uh, a vine or anything. It's like more of a natural, like underneath a beech tree or something where the, um, or a lot of times it'll be like a traditional area where they're have scraped in the past. Um, but anyway, I did get some certain type of scent and try it this year to see and, and left one unsend or whatever you want to say, just to see if it makes a difference or if I, if I feel like it helped any or not helped any. Um, but the verdict is all out on that stuff, but a lot of people use them. A lot of people have success with them. Uh, my thing is, I don't know that you're actually pulling deer to that scrape. I think you're, yeah. I think if they come through that wood lot and you've got a scrape there, they're going to move to the scrape. So you're going to get more pictures there. So, I mean, if mm -hmm. you're both, see what's moving through the area i think that's great but i don't think a deer is you know walking out of his way through you know half of the forest to get there but if he comes through that section he's going to go to that spot and you can get a picture i think that's where you benefit i don't think you mm. you know it's not like a, a bait pile you're not pulling him in from a distance and he's camping out next to it because of it you know um you're just getting a picture when he comes through would you agree with yeah. that Chad? yeah i mean that lines up like i said um, when we, when we put these things out, we're, we're doing it in the face, in the face of where the deer are. We're not just putting them out into a spot. Yeah. You're not going to pull them to that spot. To get them over there. No, that's yeah. So I, yeah, I, I agree with that. And that's, that's the purpose that I'm, I put them up to. I just trying to essentially get them to pose for the camera for me. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, okay. We got a call in here. Hopefully Adam's ready. He, he was ready. There he is. Yeah, I'm ready. All right. Hey, man, how's it going? What's up? Yeah. I'm dealing with a four-year-old that needs to go to bed. but uh, That's all right. So, question kind of about the mock scrapes, too. So, I, I hate asking this question because I know if, if you guys had a dollar for every time somebody asked you something and you said, you know, every deer is different personality-wise. But So, let's say you, you get a target buck on camera during the summer. Um, come October, whatever, you know, the beans harden up, the agriculture hardens up, mass crop falls, whatever. And that deer disappears. On average, now I know every deer is different, but on average, how far are you guys seeing these deer go? Are you seeing them go, you know, 100 miles? Are you seeing them go a half a mile? Or are you seeing them go, you know, and I'm talking, Josh, you know how it is. I'm talking habitat where there's agriculture fields and, and beds and rolling hills and you know, so it's not like the deer doesn't have what it needs. 
I'm just kind of curious of kind of what to expect there, if that makes sense. I think it's kind of terrain specific, like uh, different areas, it's different. Um, for me, around my area, the deer I see around here, I, I've seen them go as far as five miles and I've seen them never leave. Um, one thing I have noticed uh, is that the older deer, I mean, when they get to be like six or older, maybe five and older, um, they tend to be more homebodies where they just stay kind of locked in. That's not always the case. Like, like you alluded to, you, you know, every deer is different, but I think the younger bucks are more likely to move around in, in vast areas. I think big ones start keying in on the safest areas as they get older and get more tight knit with certain areas. What do you think, uh, Chad? I mean, you're hunting a whole different area than I am. Uh, I mean, we've seen the whole gambit of spectrums as far as deer, deer breaking up, uh, when they go hard horn or relocating even towards like the end of May, beginning of June, and then they're gone for the summer. And then all of a sudden they're back you know, September 27th or, or, or whatever we've seen it. We've kind of seen every spectrum of that. We've seen deer disappear, um, and then be back, be back in that area for the rut. And they're only there for two weeks or 10 days and then they're gone again. And then like to Dan's point, we have deer that we've had on camera for three, four consecutive years. And then they're, they're there all year, all year round. Like they're in the clear cuts in the summer eating, um, Maybe they transition over like one ridge, which is, you know, the way the, way the crow flies could be just a couple few hundred yards. And then they're in the timber eating acorns and green briars, um, you know, when those when those clear cuts start to start to dry up. But, um, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't have a like the average is three miles. <laughs> it's pretty. Open. I can say I've killed a lot of deer that I've located in July and in August. So, I mean. A lot, of, a lot of my big bucks have come from that time frame, locating them, and I shoot them near where I found them. You know? Yeah, and you know what? I, I know there's multiple, multiple people that tell you, and I, I know I've heard it from you, Dan, and like, don't put a camera in a bedding area, you know, or you don't, you know. We went for broke on this little area, uh, and it, it's paid off so far, camera-wise, and we have some real good intel. And I'm just curious as far as, you know, this is, I don't know, probably the first week we've gotten pictures of this bus. And so I'm kind of anticipating him disappearing. Hey, please stop. And kind of anticipating, you know, is this deer going to, the beans get hard or is he going to go 50 miles, 100 miles, you know what I mean? And, and it's it's kind of, I know it's an open-ended question, but that's kind of where I'm at. But, well, I would just, uh, you have to assume he's there and, and go for him. What else are you going to do? Right. So I'd look, at, I'd look at acorns and stuff like that. He might disappear and still be there right underneath your nose. Right. Uh, he just kind of moved to acorns or something that got a little more nocturnal um, right. and just be on a different pattern because the beans dried up, you know? You just right. got to look around and spread out until you find them. Um, yeah. You got any experience with that, Josh? Um, Man, I don't, I don't think the like a mature deer. Um, I don't think he goes that far sometimes. I think sometimes like if you bump him or something, he just gets smart to you mm -hmm. or, um, figures out a way to live there knowing that you're in the area. Um, I had, I killed, I killed a deer in 2018, probably. I don't know. I'm bad with years, but I spooked him 
um he 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 was at 10 yards i was i i was using a recurve bow and i i when i pulled back he he froze behind a tree and i couldn't hold my bow long enough to let him um you know step out and um i ended up finding him again um a couple weeks later probably two miles down the road and ended up killing him uh but i mean it was during the rut so he could have been just over there because he was chasing a doe or something too you know so if if a buck like that leaves like you said you found him two miles is that Mm -hmm. by or is that by trail camera is that i mean how do you go getting back on a deer you know what i mean yeah i found him um um in a pick cornfield well standing out with the doe glassed him um found him that way but i mean I, you could have found him with a trail camera camera you know if you happen to have one in that area um i just got lucky and happened to be able to hunt the um i, I this happened on public where i you know screwed it screwed him up and then he ended up being down on a farm i could hunt um so yes yeah adam do you do you have historical data on this one specific deer that we're talking about or is this the first year you've had you know uh, about it. me and this buck go back like four days so you can, oh. you can no okay yeah. so we went out scouting um it was around fourth of july somewhere in there and we literally went to an area we were on our hands and knees crawling in these little what i call them they look like coyote tunnels and we i found beds I mean, multiple beds everywhere, not together, but like one bed over here. And then you crawl 40, 50 yards and then one bed over here. It was like the extreme of the extreme, but I wanted to go in one time and just look and just see, you know, and if, if there was anything in there, so be it. And we found all these beds and I'm like, you know what? We're in here. Let's put a camera up and kind of that's where we're at. So and- is there a uh, multiple bucks with this buck or is he alone he's alone i think he's more likely to stay if he's alone it's when when the bachelor groups disperse i think those bucks move off more often yeah he's so it's without giving too much information it's it's not an ox though but it's on the edge of water mm-hmm. but he is on a oh it's a thicket that runs right in the side of water so my thinking is he's bedding with the water to his back or vice versa, you know, whatever, and having the wind come over. Because there's nothing that can, there's only, there's only essentially two or three ways that something could get to him, you know. And I'm already in my head, like, you know, laying there of an evening, looking at the map, thinking, how would I hunt this? Because you're not going to, you're not going to crawl in there to him, you know. I mean, that's why he's in there. So I'm just, I'm trying to dot all my I's and cross all my T's and see what, Kind of what we what your guys's take on it was but i would take a look at more bedding areas than that and not put all your eggs in that one basket i think he's probably living in that area and i would want to learn the whole area around there and i'd want to know all the spots he could be bedding and i'd want you know i don't know that i'd be in there invading him right now right, right. i'd be making a game plan to, to hunt the area down um you know and start off right off the bat before you know he does move or something if right. he does 
But if he's alone, I think he's more he's less likely to move. You know, the bachelor groups when they break up, I see those bucks move more often. Like one will stay in the area and the other ones will kind of leave. I mean they're around somewhere, but right. But they move a distance. So it's it's July 14th. As far as like a big buck still in velvet, what kind of thick stuff, I guess what kind of stem count are you finding these deer in? You know, are, there, are their antlers still soft enough where they don't want to bang them on like a high stem count area? Or is it kind of that transition period where they're kind of hardening up and they, you know, kind of going in thicker stuff, I guess? I don't know. I, I, this time of the year, I'd put them on the edge of thick. Uh, I don't know if it has to do with bumping their antlers or not, but they're not in as deep. They bed more like the does do, more at the edge. Um I got you. Yeah. I got some of them coming out of pretty thick stuff too, though. So yeah, I don't know that it has a big, big effect on them, you know? Right. Right. But yeah, I I mean, you're hundred percent right. When you said, don't, uh, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That's what I needed to hear because that's kind of what I've been. I mean, I've been, I've been picking this area apart, trying to think, you know, if we set up here with this kind of wind, you know, and, and that kind of goes back to the question I asked, you know, I know there's not a definite answer. I would feel a lot better if somebody's like, oh, he's only going to go half a mile. But, you know, that's it, kind of where I'm at. Dan, what would you, what would, what would your opinion be on, on this strategy? So this is a new area for, for Adam, new buck. What if he went in with two guys, bumped that deer out of his bed and visually watched where that deer went? To maybe key in on a key in on on his like second second bedding area, or, or do you think that's do you think that's a no no? I think um, the last thing you want to do is tell that deer he's being hunted. They just if it's a mature buck, they get very hard to kill as soon as they know the game's on. Yeah, I um, mean right now, like in the middle in the oh, middle I see. I in see. the middle of summer. I think his bed's probably going to change, which is part of the reason I was telling him not to put all those eggs in the basket. Um, so I really won't, wouldn't want to kick them out of the area. I'd tr- probably just try to monitor them. I'd probably want to set up some trail cams, you know, around the area. And uh, especially if you got cell cams, um, drop them into areas around the woods. If you got uh, oak flats that are going to have acorns this year, you might want to put those cameras in there now um, at areas where deer traditionally come out. You'll see the old trails, the old sign, the historical rubs. Um funnels and stuff and try to monitor what that buck's doing back there um glass them watch them i try to you know um like right now i'm putting out a wide net i'm going out glass and i'm putting miles on i'm going to all the public spots and i'm finding bucks and i'm building up an inventory and uh some areas i'm not going to find something some areas i am some areas you know the bucks okay i you know and then i'll find some real big bucks and those bucks, I'm going to keep tabs on. I'm going to watch them. And I'm going to start fine-tuning that, you know, as we get into, you know, mid, late August, and then into, I mean, July, and then into August. I'm going to start narrowing that search to where those bigger bucks are. And really watching those fields, watching all the way around, going in, maybe even doing some observation sits, and really trying to, without that buck knowing, I'm watching him. Try to just keep tabs on him, you know, from a distance. That doesn't mean pester the hell out of him. It means just get a look, you know, back out. Okay, here's where he's coming, you know, now. 
and see how he's shifting around and uh, just keep tabs on the ones you want to kill. Um, the thing you got to remember too, is that, you know, um, the buck you're describing, I'm on 10 of those a year and I'm, I'm hunting spots. Like you're talking about your spot every time I hunt and it might look like I'm very successful because I kill a lot of bucks over the years, but I'm hunting every day of the season. And how many deer am I killing? So, I mean, I might go into 10 spots or 20 spots like that before I actually get an opportunity. So you really got to look at, you got to look at the bigger picture of the forest there because that buck's probably going to shift around. He might be right where you think he is. He might be right there opening day. I've had that happen. Mm-hmm. But that ain't always the case. You got to be broader and better prepared, I think. Yeah. So let me ask you this, the way you describe it there. So you would kind of see if you can find entry and exit routes, put cameras on them and move on, try to find different deer. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Yeah, I, I think you don't want to get so obsessed with this that you keep pestering over there trying to figure out a kill tree or something like that. And then you, you get that deer to bug out. Right. Then you'll, then you'll get your wish, what you asked for. He's going to move five miles. Right. So, <laughs> so, I mean, if you have the opportunity to drop a couple cameras on the side of that, where you think his exits are, I wouldn't worry about his entrances. Worry about how he exits in the evening. Drop a trail camera in those spots. Watch it from a distance. Have that trail camera sending you, you know, emails. And then, you, you know, start looking outside of there and just let the cameras do the work. Just leave them alone those cameras do the work and go find you know where else could he be what else could he be doing what other bedding areas is he using where is he going to be feeding what's going on in that woods that's going to you know change you know um is he going to shift over to corn is he going to shift to acorns what's he going to do different you know um and just try to read that woods and that terrain and the bedding and right right and Josh, I'm sure you got people lined up wanting to call in too. I apologize. Yeah, I got another. I got another question for Chad, but it can wait. I mean, I can I can ask next week. Go ahead. Go ahead. We can, we can take another. We got one more behind you, but that's good. We're good. Go ahead. Okay. <clears throat> so, Chad, I, I listened to a guy the other day talk about. Of course, everybody's got cell cams now, but you know, there's some spots on public I won't run a cell cam because you're just asking to be stolen, and so you go get a Walmart camera. But I heard a guy talk about running this trail cameras at night. Have you ever heard anybody had any experience with that or had, you know, cause like you're saying, Dan, if that big bucks in his bed and then he's, he's build a night, he's gone out of that bed and you go in and check that camera, you're not really bumping him. So I didn't know if that's the first time I'd heard of it. And I thought maybe it sounded a little crazy, but. What, what was it again? Him, him going out at night to put trail cameras out. Just that and mainly check them. Oh, pull the car. Um, I don't know of anybody that does that as like normal practice. I do know one or two guys that do that because of their work schedule. Right. Yep. So they'll get up early in the morning. So they're not missing family time evenings. And then they'll do all their trail camera work, card pulls, put cameras out between 4 a.m. to sunup or whatever, whatever the case is. And, then, and they'll check them in the, in the same manner. Yeah. You know, I don't know if, if you know where the deer are at night and they're not, there in front of the cameras i mean if, if you're certain you know where they are then i don't i don't see a problem with it um but i've never i've never done that myself yeah. the problem i have with that is that uh um i think they're less scared of you than they are your scent 
Yeah. I think the scent you're getting in there at night is going to do the damage. Um, yeah, I, I was going to say the same thing. The deer don't care if you're there in the morning yeah. or, or daylight you, or night. It's like it's still scent. If you get a cell cam and you lock it, most people don't want to sell steal a cell cam because they're on camera and they, you got the picture of them. They usually leave cell cams alone. And then if you lock the thing, you're going to think of, you know, they come in there and mess with it. You're getting pictures of them and then they're, you know. Um, but I mean, if it's a, a afforded thing or whatever, and, and I get that, um, I probably wouldn't even use a camera if, a, if it was going to be a regular camera, you're going to be too tempted to go in there and check the damn thing. And, uh, it's going to cause more damage than, than good. I think put this, if you're using regular cameras, put them out in the feeding areas, put them in the oak trees, put them in the funnels and monitor where that deer is going at night, but don't put them by the bedding areas. You're going to put it by the bedding area. Invest in a cell cam, and then two that bucks there because people don't go over there, so you're not going to get very many people in those areas. Right. I make. I have a theory that if I get enough Tasco cameras stolen, that my wife will feel sorry for me, and I can buy some. <laughs> <laughs> there you go, man. Hey, man, I was going to give you a, a shirt for calling in tonight. Hey. So yeah. sh shoot me a message. I'll get you get the ship to you. So. Um, thanks, well, man. Probably got put to bed, so I appreciate it, guys. Yeah. Thanks for coming Adam. See you, Adam. All right, we got one more call in here, guys. There's Tyler. Hey, what's going on, guys? How you doing? Good. How are you? Good. I got Good. a quick, quick question. I got a buck that I've been monitoring the last two years. He beds on this little high spot that is surrounded by the thickest stuff you could imagine you cannot put a stand up in a tree to be able to shoot even more than five yards. The only way would be maybe to hunt them on the ground. Um, but my biggest thing is he beds on this high spot because he has every wind direction to his benefit for him to leave if there's any danger. And there's only one way to access him. And I was wondering, is there a certain distance you think that I should try to push to see how close I can get to him in his bed on the ground. It's a really like difficult buck to honestly hunt. Um, I was just wondering if there was any like takes that maybe you guys could have on it. Uh, me personally, I would say that um, that's a, a, a variable answer. So how close I get to that, that buck is going to be as close as I can. And by that, what I mean is I'm going to be, just beyond his eyesight, just outside of his wind, just beyond his hearing. I'm going to take those things into to effect, and I'm going to get as close as I can. Uh, in an ideal world, in uh, the type of terrain you're describing, I would hope to get about 75 yards to 100 yards from that uh, bed. That's about how far I get them moving in daylight every time they come out of the beds. I mean, sometimes they move 200 yards, sometimes three but they generally get that 75, 100 yards mark in daylight, no matter what, you know, when they leave in the evening. So that's what I, that's the kind of window I try to get to, but really um, where I end up is as close as I can get where I'm not going to spook that deer. That's the gotcha. answer I can give an exact yardage. I got you. Yeah, this buck is in a, He's definitely an old, mature buck. For PA and on public land, he's probably going to go. I had him on camera last year, and he was 165 inches easily last year. 
Hmm. He had a drop time. So it's one that I've really tried to up my game on. And he is pretty solid on using this area. He uses two ends of this high spot. And on the back side of it is actually a big access trail that people walk on. And he is betting 80 yards from an access trail. Literally, he could just turn his head and just watch if you walk by and you would never even see him, but he can see you. Mm-hmm. So the only access for me is to come from the way he's going to be watching. So that's what I was trying to say. Like, how close do you think I could push? You just, you gotta, you gotta think about what he can see, what he can hear, you know, like, in an ideal world, if I hunt, if I scouted that in springtime and winter, I'd actually go to where those beds are. I'd look around where his beds are. I'd kneel down and I'd look and see what he can see, how far he can see. And at that time, there ain't leaves. So you get that perfect gist and you look down his trails and you're like, okay, what can, how far can I see? And then you go 20, 30 yards beyond that, that site window and, and you have a setup. Um, you know, you gotta you gotta think about you know the sound barrier. I mean, if you're coming through like gooky swamp that we're gonna be slurping, if you're coming through really heavy cover where you're gonna be making noise, then maybe you gotta go in on a, a a rain day when the leaves aren't crunching, or maybe you gotta go in on a windy day when you're not making noise in the leaves, or if there's a chance that deer might get a little glimpse of you coming through the brush. The windy days with the movement of the brush, they're less likely to notice you. Um, so. I mean, there's a lot of factors that come into play on how close you get and when. You know, some some of those places I'll reserve for the perfect day, for that wind day, or you know, um, if you watched my hunt last year on that big buck, I was waiting for that north wind, and for a heavy north wind because I had to sneak around that buck's bed to get to my tree. Thank you. I appreciate those answers. That's even stuff that I didn't even think about, just like the rain playing a factor, those heavy winds and stuff. Yeah. Um, Tyler, I've killed two mature deer off the ground. Both of them have been high wind days where I could sneak in real quiet and undetected. So um, I was going to say that, but Dana already did. Yeah, um, hunting from the ground for me is something that's going to be completely new. I've only ever killed one deer from the ground. So this chasing like a buck like this and being on the ground, it's kind of a little bit of like a scary factor, you know what I mean? Just how hard should I push it? He doesn't seem like he takes a lot of pressure it seems like if he's bumped one time he's gone he's out of the area and i can't relocate him so i really think i only have one shot truly at him then pick the right day thank you yep see man thanks for calling in thank you all right guys we have been on for over an hour and a half now so um lots of stuff going on in the chats and lots of questions tonight so i appreciate everybody getting on chad pitch uh picture your company your youtube channel let everybody all, know what you guys got going on all things at exodus outdoor gear social google add a com to it um yeah just search exodus outdoor gear you'll find us somewhere yep Keep us- you guys got a few few podcasts under your umbrella that are really good what's the, the land podcast deer gear and um trail cam radio the right? YouTube channel is, is awesome too. Yeah. Um, all right, everybody. Thanks for, uh, coming on tonight. If you are, uh, or you're watching, you're not a subscriber, please subscribe to the channel. We'll get you some, a chance to win a set of mini bee sticks and a whole bunch of other stuff in the future. So everybody have a good night. Talk to you next week. <laughs>